This episode of Film Jive is brought to you by Audible.com, the world's largest selection of premium audiobooks and spoken word content with over 150,000 titles to choose from. To sign up for your free 30-day trial, please visit audibletrial.com slash filmjive. Thank you for listening to the Film Jive Podcast. My name is Zach. I'm very excited to present this special interview episode where I recently had the opportunity to briefly talk with Chris Vanderkay, a screenwriter and co-author of the new horror film interview book titled The Anatomy of Fear, Conversations with Cult Horror and Science Fiction Filmmakers. The book is currently available for purchase through Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Uh, In the book... Chris and his co-author Kathleen Fernandez-Vanderkay engaged in conversation with 21 screenwriters and directors, learning some of the inspirations and original intentions behind films such as Fright Night, Child's Play, Black Christmas, Six String Samurai, and Virus. I'm grateful to both Chris and Kathleen for giving both Andy and I the opportunity to read the book and discuss it more in depth. Uh, I encourage anyone listening to purchase either a soft cover or ebook version of The Anatomy of Fear. Now, without further ado, here's my interview with Chris Vanderkay. first question I wanted to start with is regarding what motivated you to write a book which attempts to provide sort of greater insight into the process of making specifically horror and science fiction films and explore the depth of that genre. Where did the entire process start for you? I think it's a fair assessment to say Kathy and I are both big fans of horror films and we love interview books. But one of the things that we found uh, a little bit lacking in most of the interview books we read of any kind is uh, focus on the philosophy and the psychology of the people making the movies. They often talk about the films, but they don't talk about their motivation for the films and the, their ideas behind the films and what, uh, you know, where those ideas may be originated. And that fascinated us. And at the same time, there was a sort of uh, 50-50 split on, on that. And also, uh, we're big believers in the idea that Sometimes a film comes out and it becomes known as something publicly, but that's not always what the filmmaker intended of it when they created it. And so there's this interesting push and pull between what a film becomes sort of in the public consciousness as and what the filmmaker was thinking when he created it. And there's that interesting dichotomy. So, uh, yeah, part of it was about getting inside the head of the filmmaker, just about their motivations, but also looking at the idea behind, you know, for the sake of argument, people talk about, Night of the Living Dead and what all these specific meanings are about racism and, you know, Vietnam War and whether or not that measures up to what George Romero was actually getting at. And so that was sort of the goal of the book was to sort of crawl inside of that and just look around and hopefully have it be illuminating to people who are interested in these movies. I've read about probably a little over 100 pages of the book kind of skimming through various chapters and filmmakers that I was aware of. I did find it interesting how it does approach the subject matter refreshingly. And like you were sort of saying, 
when you look at different writings that discuss these sort of genre films, it's usually done from a very academic or critical eye, and it's usually discussing horror films from the 70s and previous. And the other alternative you have to that is that you have these, you know, yearly television specials that get kind of the usual suspects of 80s and 90s generations of filmmakers who just reflect nostalgically about what makes their movie so special. Right. So in addition to what you were saying, I, I wondered if you looked at that landscape and you, you were seeing some a potential for something else. But I'm curious how you came to that conclusion in a way, because it's like, did you always set out to talk to someone like Tom Holland, who is a part of an 80s generation and has a cult following, but isn't critically discussed as much as someone like, say, for instance, Wes Craven? Right. Well, certainly, I, I, Kathy and I are both of the opinion that even if a film isn't uh, great, there's something to talk about about it, and the, the goal of this book, not that there are any movies in this book that we feel like aren't actually good and worth talking about, but even bad films um, usually spur a discussion, and uh, something that's happened in recent years, particularly with the advent of the internet and people watching things at home more, is that the internet has become the lobby, and the lobby conversation has gone online. The problem is that the conversation has also devolved a little bit. It's... Um, it's less passionate, and it's also less, uh, less accurate, less knowledgeable. And so our goal was, in talking to the filmmakers that have made films that are still worth talking about, to bring them into the process of sort of that lobby conversation so that you can have, uh, a reader can have a sense of closeness to the filmmaker like we have now, but still be able to glean really fascinating stuff from it at the same time. So we were sort of trying to marry the classic old style of uh, film criticism and analysis with the newer and less formal style of uh, conversation that you have in a world where Twitter exists and you can directly message someone. Just out of curiosity, previous to writing this book, what was your background in sort of critical film writing? I, merely as a fan. Mm. We're screenwriters, so we do a lot of screenwriting ourselves, and that's how we actually met a lot of these people. But um, from a critical perspective, Aside from the, some, we, we work at the website Bloody Good Horror, and obviously we write some, some reviews there for classic films. But beyond that, we didn't really do any critical analysis. This was sort of dipping our toe into it for the first time as far as like in a codified in a specific form. And the reason we did it is because we love it so much, and it was only when we noticed that all the stuff we loved reading about it was old, was, you know, 5, 10, 15 years old, that we realized nobody's doing this now. And we're also going to get to a certain point at which, like you said, they were talking about films from the 70s. Well, even the filmmakers from the 80s and the 90s, they're, they're aging. And if these things don't get captured, uh, we'll lose the opportunity to have it. In fact, one of the, uh, the great uh, things that we were able to do in the book that was uh, a tragedy, but it was also great, was that we were able to speak to George Sluise, the director of the original uh, and the remake, American remake of The Vanishing. And it was a great conversation. And about two weeks after the book actually was released, George Sluise passed away. And uh, it was very sad, And but I, I think that probably our book was one of the last times that he talked openly about the work of The Vanishing. So uh, one of our goals is to try and get this down for posterity because these guys aren't, aren't going to be around forever, you know. Mm -hmm. Speaking kind of of Sluise, that, that was someone who I thought was interesting that you talked to because I wouldn't necessarily consider him necessarily a horror filmmaker. So... What I'm curious is how you went about speaking to the people that you did. Did you draft an initial list 
that served, I guess, whatever objective interests you had, or was it more of a trial and error process where there were people that rejected the offer to speak with you and you had to approach the next person on your list? The original pool was everyone we loved, which is obviously too big a pool. And I, I may have mentioned to you an email, but I should probably tell anyone who's listening that aside from the book, which itself is several hundred pages of this material, when you buy the book, there's a code in the back for you to go online and get an additional 100 plus pages of bonus book online because we just had so much material that was so great and that we didn't want to lose. Um, but yet, more directly to your question, we we would start, we had a few people that said they weren't able to do it, primarily people who weren't able, weren't able to do it because of scheduling. We never had anybody say they weren't interested. Now, obviously, you have some people that are just hard to get to. The more famous the celebrity or, you know, filmmaker, the more people that are around them, the bigger the Hollywood bubble is. So it's much more difficult to get to them. And the interesting thing about interviews is when you can connect directly to a person and they get a sense of who you are and that you appreciate what they're doing and that you're um, conversant and intelligent in it, they want to talk to you. The problem is not a lot of people are. That's why they create that bubble. So the great thing has been most of the people that we were actually able to contact and speak with were super helpful, very open with the questions and their time. They were really great to work with. And so really the matter for us was in finding a film that we wanted to talk about, the, what it had to be is that the film itself didn't have to be what, what was interesting. It was the conversation that the film would fuel had to be interesting. And for anyone who's listening who maybe has aspirations of writing critical film analysis, how do you pitch an interview with someone? How do you make that enticing for the person that you're reaching out to? Well, obviously, it's going to be different depending on what your arena is. You know, if you're working in horror film, it's going to be different than if you're writing a uh, you know competitive cycling book or something. But I, I think across the board, I think the thing that's the most important is uh, that you have to be. There are two elements that you have to have brevity and you have to have intelligence. And, I, and maybe I would add respect to that, but I think brevity is part of respect. Which is when you have when you talk to them, you'll get if it's in person, you'll have probably less than a minute, and if it's in an email, you've got one email and probably a short one because you don't want to um, overburden them with information. So you have to be very judicial about what information you're putting in, not burdening them with unnecessary information, telling them what you're doing, trying to sound professional, and be extremely respectful of what they've already done. And generally what I find is if they, uh, if you can pitch your idea good, you can make it eloquent, and they like the idea, then you, that's half the job right there. If they like the idea of appearing in something because of the idea itself, then you don't have to sell yourself as much. Uh, it's really just about being respectful and not wasting their time. When it comes to actually either sitting down with that person or speaking to them over the phone or through the internet, I'm interested in how you approach interviewing a filmmaker. I was just talking with a friend of mine recently who is also a filmmaker herself, and we were kind of joking about the current state of Film journalism in the sense that today when you watch these press conferences or junket interviews, it's kind of reached the point where the journalists will simply say to the filmmaker, talk about why you made the film, which, you know, isn't really a, a question at all. It's, it's more of a demand. Right. It's making the filmmaker do the work the journalist should be doing. Right. And the joke was that in the future... I'll be watching television when I'm 80, and there'll be some new iteration of something like The Charlie Rose Show where the interviewer will simply say to the subject, now please say something. And the person will say something. It's like, thank you. Could you please say something else? And so on. So I'm guess I, I'm interested in how you and your wife, Kathleen, 
approached each interview and did you conduct them together and and how did you divvy up that workload were you in the room with the filmmaker was it over the phone how did you adjust i guess your questioning to fit those circumstances if that's something you even have to do Right. Well, uh, the way that we usually divvy up the work is that Kathy and I both do the research, but I would argue probably she does more research than me. Generally, the way it shakes out is she does the hard work and I do the sort of the shameless self-promotion. And so I get the easier job. But usually what we do is uh, when we sit down with someone, we don't, we don't write down uh, a list of hard and fast questions that we want to ask. Usually what we do is we make notes about interesting things. It'll, just, it'll literally just be a tag that says, uh, for the sake of argument with Jack Shoulder, in the movie Alone in the Dark, he had some really interesting observations uh, that were happening around the late 70s and the early 80s because of a psychiatrist named R.D. Lang. And so we just jotted down his name and a little bit of what he talked about. No question specifically about it. We just had it on the page, and we had a lot of those notes, three, four, five pages sometimes. And we didn't make any questions except the initial and the end question, which was formative film memories and then nightmares on the set, you know, memories of the worst day you had on the set. And that was sort of our opener and our closer. But what those are meant to do is to grease the wheels and then the rest of it, we wanted it to feel like a conversation. We didn't want it to be a situation where I would ask a question and they would answer it and then I would follow it up with a different question. We wanted it to feel organic, like things were being discovered and explored. And I think you can actually even see in some of the interviews with uh, Eric Luke when he talked about writing explorers. He was actually realizing sort of in real time some of the connections between his childhood and writing that film that he hadn't thought about because it was just sort of coming up in the moment. Did you ever run into a situation where the subject that you were interviewing wasn't being very receptive to your line of questioning and how did you adapt to that if that situation ever came up? It, it did come up. I will obviously not name the person I'm talking about, though their final interview didn't actually end up in the book, so I don't know if that tells you something. The, the point of the book was for people who are good at their job and open about what they're doing to talk to others who are interested in hearing about it. So when you run into someone who doesn't feel like that, it's like pulling teeth to get them to be interested in going off the script. You know, there are a lot of people who interviewing is not something they're interested in. So they have their, their 12 rote answers that they'll bring to the table, and that's what they're interested in telling you about because they want to plug their movie. And generally, though... Uh, you can you can kind of sense who that's going to be based on the work. You know, if you're talking to a filmmaker like, and I love his work, but uh, if you look at like the guy, you know, Charles Band, the guy who made the all of the Full Moon films, Puppet Master and all those, mm. he's a really nice guy, but he's a guy who makes movies to make a profit. He's not, uh, he w I don't think he would consider himself an artist in the strictest sense. And so he's not the kind of guy you would seek out for a book like this, you know, someone who pumps out movies because he wants to he wants to sort of have like a little cottage industry of low budget B movies that aren't that artistically satisfying but pay the bills. Um and what we try to do was find people who were if not auteurs then at least people who were visiting interesting arenas of storytelling or were touching on things that don't maybe get touched on in mainstream movies in the hopes that those are things they're going to want to talk about. And it turned out to be true for the most part. Throughout the book I got this impression that there's a consensus opinion among horror filmmakers where they they sort of feel underappreciated or that, or that their work in the genre or the genre itself isn't given the same kind of respect that filmmakers that work in other genres are and i'm wondering after talking to all of these different people where you think that mentality comes from if you think it even exists at all well i think it's inarguable certainly that that horror is not treated with the respect that any other genre is it's i mean all you have to do is look at any award ceremony for anything ever 
and measure the number of horror nominations versus any other genre. You know, I mean, obviously it makes clear that people don't take it seriously. The thing I find interesting is it's it's starting to shift a little bit nowadays because of mostly, I think, television. Shows like The Walking Dead and Hannibal are taking dark subject matter seriously, and that's helping. But w one of the things I love about most of the people we spoke to for this book is, with the exception of a, a few filmmakers here and there, most of the people we talked to um, consider themselves to be filmmakers who have at some point in time made horror films, or still do, but don't consider themselves to be horror filmmakers by and large. And I think it's a, it's an important distinction. Now, Larry Fessenden would say he loves horror films and is a horror filmmaker, but anybody who's ever watched his films or spoken to him knows he's so much smarter and more erudite than you would expect from a guy who just loves horror movies. And all these guys are the same way. And I think it's an important distinction because what it is is that these aren't guys who are just making movies because they love to have effect sequences where people get decapitated or, you know, someone's eaten by a monster. What they're interested in is that horror exists on the outermost edges of what you're allowed to get away with and discuss in film. And you're allowed to, in a horror film where you're having outlandish things happen that people don't believe, you're also allowed to talk about controversial things that no one in a regular drama or a comedy is comfortable with discussing. You know, things like 40 years ago when you're talking about racism or you're talking about abortion or you're talking about women's rights, you know, during eras where it was a hot-button topic no one else wanted to discuss horror is allowed to jump in the deep end on stuff like that. And I think that's what attracted a lot of these filmmakers to the genre was not necessarily the the graphically violent subject matter so much as the opportunity to discuss things either in a veiled way or directly through uh, some sort of allegorical representation. Do you think horror, though, today is still using the genre in that way? I think one of the worst things that's happened with the genre is that... Uh, and this sounds strange, sounds counterintuitive, but I'll explain myself, is that the, the ratings board has eased up on what you can put into a film and still have it be released. And in a way, I think the ability for, for people, both technologically now with CGI and things like that, and also permissively, because there's nobody telling them that they can't put that kind of content in a movie, they've lost a little bit of the creative edge that they used to have to have to make up for budgets or the inability to have something uh, just painted on screen with pixels or the ability to directly say a specific word or show a specific image. Um, filmmakers had to be clever. They had to be able to figure out how to sort of sneak around those things. And I feel like, though it is great that there's less censorship nowadays and obviously more ability to make whatever you want because of uh, emerging technologies, I also feel it has taken away a little bit of the filmmaker's drive and ingenuity because you don't have to, you don't have to jump through those hoops anymore. Not that the hoops were good, but it gives you the exercise, you know? Yes. Yeah, I agree that the the horror genre isn't as respected as, say, drama, for instance. But that drama, to me, is a genre that isn't as easily definable. Not that horror is easily definable either, but it's much broader, and it can't drama can't be classified so much by motifs and tropes. But I I, I sometimes wonder if horror isn't treated with the same kind of respect, because I do see it as a as a genre that. A lot of filmmakers have used disrespectfully. Filmmakers use the genre as a way to kickstart a career or make a fast profit. If anything, the language of a horror film is more abused by people than other genres are. And I would say that sometimes I struggle with this debate of it being underappreciated because I would say of any, maybe uh, that's true, of, true critically, Mm -hmm. But I would say of any genre, I would say horror probably has the largest sort of uh, 
fan base among cinephiles, people who are extremely devoted to anything that comes with that sort of association. Oh, absolutely. There, I think they're probably, well, along with science fiction, the most loyal fans, which is the reason why a filmmaker can make a low-budget horror film for no money and know that it'll probably turn a profit because they're loyal. And, and it's abused, too. I mean, producers do the same thing. There are constantly movies like Ouija and The Quiet Ones that are like the most sort of obvious programmer-type horror films in the world that are put out specifically because they know that there are loyal people who will go out there, and if they spend this much or less, they'll make their money back, you know? And it's unfortunate. I think it's. Uh, I think you don't get that as much in other genres, like you were saying. You know, you don't get that in drama. Nobody just makes a drama thinking, "Oh, all the drama folks will come out and see this." But uh, I do think there's an interesting element to horror too, which which doesn't get explored much. Which is, um, Kathy and I have been doing a lot of intro to film uh, class appearances. And when you talk about what belongs in a horror film, as opposed to you know when you break down other genres they have their boundaries and their explanations. The interesting thing is there's actually nothing that you can't do in a horror film. In every other genre, once you do a certain thing, it becomes a different genre. If you introduce time travel, a drama becomes a science fiction film. Well, you can actually have you can have time travel in a horror film. Uh, you can have almost anything from any other genre in a horror film, and in that way it's the most flexible genre there is. So it's actually the place where you're allowed to do the most as opposed to being the most limited. Yeah, and I think I know someone like David Lynch, for instance. I'm sh I I know there are a lot of people that consider David Lynch to be a horror filmmaker. I I completely understand that perspective. I don't necessarily agree, but I think that speaks more to, like you were saying, the flexibility of what horror is rather than his intentions as a filmmaker. Yeah. Well, certainly, I think one of the reasons that so many subcategories of horror exist, subgenres, and even terms that we've sort of split off into new genres, like psychological thriller or supernatural thriller or um, you know serial killer like the reason we have all these categories is because horror is so sort of amorphous and uh, you know a horror movie doesn't even have to be scary like a film like uh, Tucker and Dale versus evil is basically essentially just a comedy but it's a horror film I mean we all know it's a horror film even though it's funny so the the, the strange thing is like there's no specific parentheses you can put around what belongs here and in that way I think horror fans love it but other people are sort of more uncomfortable about it because if you go to a different genre of movie you feel more comfortable about what it is that you're being given you'll know before going in generally what things you get once you began began working on the book how long was that writing process um, the writing of it itself was not actually the longest part of the process um, Obviously, the transcription takes quite a while because we did all our interviews audio and then transcribed them later, and I did not have a transcription machine, so I did it the stupid hard way, which is to rewind in iTunes and type until my fingers tired out and then rewind back. So that was a long process, but the actual writing of the book was not as long as defining a place for the book. I don't want to say it's a dying um, subgenre, but the, uh, the interview book, because so many interviews can be done for free on the Internet now, um, people don't want to invest, even if it's a, a good book, they're afraid that audiences aren't going to seek it out because can't they just listen to this guy talk on a website? The thing is, is um, we eventually had to find a place that understood that horror is different than other places. This, this might not work if you were just talking to you know, people who made regular films, but horror fans, as you said before, are very loyal. But it took a while for us to find people who understood that that was the case. And so that was really the big journey. We probably were writing the book for between six to eight months 
but it was uh, it was well over a year after that before we had placed it a place that we felt comfortable with. Were there any particular books or writing styles that were an influence on your own work? Um, I think probably for the style of this book, we have other nonfiction books we're currently working on that are very different than this one, but for this one, I think probably would have to say that uh, Peter Bogdanovich, before he became a filmmaker, was a film critic and actually a very good friend of Orson Welles, and he did an entire book of interviews with Orson Welles where they just sort of walked through the, his career a film or two at a time, and it's just a series of uh, first-person conversations kind of like this book was, and that was, for me, uh, one of the best experiences of reading about a filmmaker because it wasn't a filmmaker writing a book first person and it wasn't someone doing a cold analysis of it either. It was two filmmakers interacting with each other in real time and that gave it a vibrancy and a, and a uh, reality that I felt like a lot of other ones didn't have. And so I guess if I had to pick one that, that the template we sort of emulated, it would be that one. That's interesting. One particular author that Andy felt there was some kind of, uh, I guess, spiritual connection with was Tom Weaver. I don't know if you're familiar with him. Uh, I don't know the name. I might know the work. Well, he's written a lot, of, a, a large number of books that are interview-based books that directly speak with filmmakers who produced and directed horror and science fiction films of like the 30s, 40s, and 50s. I have read one of his books. It was a very long time ago, and I didn't actually know his name because this is, you know, this is the way it works when you used to shop at garage sales. I got a book where all that was left was part of the spine and no cover. So... It was one of those books. I'm sure it was. I would be able to tell you. I'll sw I swear to it. But the guys that were in those books, they were all like science fiction and horror filmmakers of the sort of the 40s. So mm -hmm. I would have to imagine it was part of that series. And yeah, who knows? I mean, that was that was probably 18 years ago I would have read that thing. So who knows how much of that was unconsciously in my head when we were working on this too. One thing I wanted to uh, talk about was um, you are working with co-writer, your wife Kathleen. And you did mention that uh, you both do research, but your wife tends to do more than you do. Uh, but I was curious, um, how do you guys go about collaborating? What is that process like, and how does it how does it differentiate from writing something alone? Well, first of all, I do want to say Kathy sends her apologies for not being able to be here. She's again, we're working on two books that have deadlines in early 2015, so she's doing the hard work, and I get to sort of take the victory lap, but. Uh, the way that we divide the work, I mean, usually, obviously, with a, with a book like this, it's a little easier to do research together because you want to obviously watch the movies you're going to be talking to people about. So that's something that you can do combined, and then we sort of each scribble our own separate notes, and then I combine them into a single file in the computer so that we've covered all of the bases and I've got it all one, in one big piece. But um, the way that we divide up, usually we don't... It's interesting because, obviously, we, we kind of do everything together. You know, we actually work together aside from writing. We're going to our master's program together. So we kind of spend all our time together. So we have a shorthand, um, almost to the point that even if one person is working on something while the other one isn't, we kind of still know what they would be pointing out or what they would be changing. So it's interesting because there have been two heads working on something for so long that even when one head works on it, it's still kind of like two of them are because we, we have that rapport. But usually the way we work is that I'll be the one that's actually doing the typing, and we'll just sort of hammer out out loud what we're thinking, and then I'll type it up when we're to the point where we like it. So it is, it's, it's, pretty, you know, it's pretty close the way that we work um, in much the same way they do with everything else in our life, you know. Mm -hmm. And I certainly don't think I'd ever be able to do this process with anyone else. I think only this, this kind of rapport only works 
with a person who already knows everything there is to know about you and has accepted it. You know, so I think in that way, it's a real advantage to us. Like you'd never be able to be as comfortable saying stupid things in my case to another human being. You know, you hold it and wait till it sounds better in your head before you put it in the world. But <laughs> luckily, I know she knows how dumb I am. So it's, I'm not surprising her. You know, I throw the bad idea out, then we figure out how to fix it so it looks good. Yeah, I've been writing a screenplay with a a co-writer that has a tremendous amount a great deal more experience in the field than I do. And just when you do some kind of brainstorming session and you have to throw out ideas that you know are stupid, you kind of cringe at the potential reaction. Yeah. It's amazing to me that people can ever work together. You know, like I always look at it as like, we, we got the marriage worked out first. So this is actually easy compared to it. So, you know, because we get along so well and spend all our time together that this is no big deal. But yeah, like two total strangers who have different lives, or even not strangers, but friends who have different experiences, like I can't imagine trying to do this process with someone else. And when it came to interviewing, were you guys always in the room together, like a three-way conversation, or did you kind of break up that workload? How did that work out? Um, I tend to do most of the actual talking. Kathy's uh She's the smartest of the two of us, but she's also the one that gets the most nervous when it comes to the actual interaction with other people. She's not a huge fan of sort of being on the phone when you can't see another person, and, and I'm fine with it. So usually what ends up happening is we're both listening to the conversation, and I'm asking the questions, and if she feels like there's something interesting to steer towards, she'll sort of pass me a note or something like that. And she does talk sometimes, just not as much as me. So, What was one of the more difficult challenges you had to overcome when writing the anatomy of fear we've been writers for a while but we uh, have never up until very recently been only writers we've been doing other things I used to be a landscaper for a living and when we first started working on this book we had basically zero money um, I was doing interviews long enough ago that uh, you know Skype was a relatively new thing it was this great new free thing that you could do to call people um, and the biggest challenge for us was basically trying to make an entire book happen with zero dollars you know so that was like can't print things off I couldn't get a transcription program I can only call people on Skype if they also had Skype or I had to figure out how to call them on a regular phone and hold a tape recorder up near the receiver so that I could tape their you know it was it was it was kind of ridiculous we were sort of working almost like a you know in a post-apocalypse world where you have like these seven things that are your belongings and you have to turn them into a machine mm -hmm. by cobbling them together that's kind of the way we assembled the, in the early days of the book that's kind of the way we were working I would say that was probably our biggest challenge it's it's become a little more streamlined now as technology has become more friendly and we have a little more spending money so has there been a specific thing in this whole experience that you found the most rewarding as I was talking about Eric Luke earlier, and it happened with several other filmmakers, um, Alec Gillis, when we talked about the philosophy of effects, and Larry Fessenden on a couple of his films, one of the things that I find rewarding, and I hope that it translates to the reader reading it, is when I hear a filmmaker um, recognize an unconscious uh, revisiting of a theme that they weren't aware of, or something from their childhood that was super formative on the way that they look at life and the way that they work in their career. And it's something that they'd never thought about. And until the moment we were discussing it, it there was this sort of this, this uh, moment of uh, recognition that hadn't happened before. You know, it was like that aha moment. And it was, it was great for uh, Kathy and I as filmmakers to be able to be there for that because you know when that happens in real time, 
then it's the first time it's happened. It's 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 real thing happening to them right then, which means whatever we're talking about hasn't been discussed with them before. Mm-hmm. This is a piece of information that they'll be able to take forward, but hadn't existed up until now. And that's a really magical moment. And now you've made them self-reflexive for the rest of their life. So now every time they try to make a movie, they're going to go, oh, God, I'm making the same movie again. Yeah, hopefully we haven't paralyzed them with that uh, knowledge. I think sometimes, like, uh, Larry Fessenden and uh, Glenn Morgan both talked about Hitchcock specifically because Hitchcock was a person who may have been aware of his obsessions, but he had quite a few of them, and they were constantly revisited in his movies. Now, I don't know if he was doing it on purpose or not, but certainly as filmmakers down the line, when we look back and we look at all of the movies where an everyman is accused of doing something wrong and has to go on the lam and clear his name because he's afraid he's going to go to jail for something he didn't do, it taps into something that was going on with Hitchcock, you know, something that was going on there, his obsession with women of specific hair colors and the idea that you can't help but believe these were things that were formative. And if it's someone had explored that at the time when he was working and he was comfortable talking about it, you might have a, the same kind of conversation with Hitchcock that we had with Larry Fessenden or Alec Gillis. Well, I believe there's an anecdote in the book about that that uh, iterates on him being arrested when he was a child or locked in a room or something yeah yeah glenn morgan told the story i i'd heard it you know like it, it, who knows if it's apocryphal or not or if he just told it because it was you know a cute story but yeah it was the not glenn i mean hitchcock if hitchcock made it up or not but yeah he always told the story about his father when he was a little boy he had done something wrong and he took him down to the local jail and had the the uh, the i forget it was constable i guess there put him in a jail cell for uh like an hour or two by himself and that like stuck with him for the rest of his life and you know, so of course it makes sense that a movie like Henry Fonda's The Wrong Man would have come out of Alfred Hitchcock if a you know, scared eight-year-old boy was locked inside of a jail cell. You know? mm-hmm. The final question I wanted to ask you was relating to a statement that you make at a certain passage in the book where it's sort of alluded to that you and your wife often argue over whether 28 Days Later should be considered a true zombie film or not. Yes. And I, I just I, – I'm – interested in who doesn't consider 28 Days Later to be a zombie film and why. It's funny. Uh, Kathy has argued that uh, my, my argument is that it is, but it's a very loose acceptance, and um, I will argue her point first. Her, her first point is there are specific boundaries on what a zombie is. That's why some things are called zombies, and some things are called revenants, and some things are called mummies. You know, there are categories, and that's how you break them down. And you don't get to just lump anything in with zombie just because it sort of has a few of the uh, a few of the markers and not other ones. You know, a zombie died, came back to life, wanders around biting other people, turning other people into zombies, but they're not alive and they don't have a consciousness. And I absolutely agree with and I respect that opinion. Where I differ is that's not what zombies were originally. Zombies were originally controlled by voodoo masters and they were alive. They just were drugged and then they're in a sort of a trance-like sleep. And then suddenly Romero came along and said, this is going to be what zombies are now. Mm-hmm. And we all went along with it. We changed it. So in a way, zombies evolved at a certain point and became a new thing. So while I agree that up until this moment in time, that has been what zombies are since 1968, it wasn't before that for 30 years. So at what point am I the person that says, you, whoever in public, don't get to decide what a zombie is? If the rest of the world said it's a zombie, they did it before. They can do it again. It's not, you know, it's not my call. And in that, in that respect, I feel like, yeah, they are zombies because isn't kind of at, at a certain point, like how hard are we going to fight to put boundaries on a fictional character? You know, like that's that's kind of where I land. Where, how, right. How did, far does that line 
distinguish itself and then are you going to then say that any film that contains zombies that are moving at fast speeds are not really zombies then right well and also like what if somebody makes another movie about voodoo zombies what do you call them now you know they're not technically zombies because they never died yeah it's, so it's it's funny there's this this you know this there's a huge movement actually within the zombie fandom world about like you were saying fast moving zombies aren't real zombies or rage zombies aren't real zombies and i, I think you know like the 28 days later zombies and i think like both sides kind of have a fair assessment of the situation like neither one of them is technically wrong in a way i kind of feel like kathy is factually accurate and i think like you know historically it'll probably shake out that these guys end up being zombies in the long run chris i want to thank you for being on the show it was a pleasure to have you here absolutely i i love the show it's uh we i when i used to work in landscaping I worked long, long hours, and filmmaking podcasts were what kept me alive and kept me sane when I was working until 6 o'clock at night. And it was shows like you guys that kept me from sort of losing focus and, and feeling like, okay, there are people out here who care about this stuff, keep writing the book. And then it was really motivating to Kathy and I to try and get stuff done. So as appreciative as you are of us coming on, we appreciate just as much what you guys do. Now, can I ask out of curiosity how far back you were listening to the show? Well, I can technically cheat and say since the beginning because what happens is when you work landscaping, you work eight and a half hours oh, a day. Oh, God, so you've listened to the oh, yeah. <laughs> the early age of Yeah, but spies. in fairness, I started late, and then I jumped back. And, you know, when you run out of new episodes, you always go back into the backlog. Right. So I had already established that you guys were really good at what you did before I went back to the, let's call it the rough early years. Yes, yeah. So uh, let them know where you can where they can find your work online and how they can purchase The Anatomy of Fear. Oh, sure. Well, obviously, you can get it at Amazon. It's also now available through Barnes & Noble. Um, you can go to their website, or you can go to a Barnes & Noble and ask, and they'll order it for you. Or you can go to the website, which is just theanatomyoffear.com. And uh, if you want to keep up with what Kathy and I are doing, we're working on a couple of other projects, uh, a couple of other books that are going to be out, hopefully late 2015. You can keep track of us on our blog, which is inthemargin.net. That's I-N-T-H-E-M-A-R-G-I-N.net. Really, I think The Anatomy of Fear is a great place to go if you haven't read the book and are interested because there's a sample chapter on there. So you can look around a little bit, you can see some of the reviews, and you can order it straight from the publisher as well, which is always great for us. You know, anytime you can cut out a middleman, we, we don't mind that. Yeah, like I said, we have got two books that are coming out in 2015, or at least we're, we're turning in in 2015. The next one's going to be exciting. It's called Horror by the Subgenres. Uh, that's the subtitle. We're not sure what the full title is, but it's basically going to be a breakdown of the 75 most well-known subgenres of horror film, what the elements of the subgenre are, and some recommendations for each one. So we're really excited about that as our next project. Do you have like the the home appliance subgenre? The we have the out of control machines horror subgenre. So yeah, that falls into there. I think death spa and microwave yeah. massacre. De death bed, the bed that eats people. Yeah. <laughs> That that's a that's a subgenre that needs to be resurrected. Resurrected is a good term for it, isn't it? Usually, the spilling of blood from some sort of ritual sacrifice that causes those things to come to life in the first place. <laughs> yeah, probably. But uh, yeah, so it's going to be a really fun book, and the great thing about it is that if you know about it, it's fun to revisit some of them. But you probably don't know about all seventy-five, so there are going to be subgenres you hadn't really thought about that you'll get a little primer for and learn about what the elements are, and then have some great recommendations to go find. And can you speak at all about what the other book is about? 
Yeah, certainly. Um, uh, we already we're going to be turning it into Bear Manor Media. They're a great company that does a lot of coverage of obscure old uh, radio shows and early TV. But the book is uh, tentatively at this point going to be um, uh, Fear Resurrected. It's called Horror Film Franchises, Volume One. And essentially, what it is is looking at horror film franchises as a franchise, not looking at individual films, but looking at the evolution of a franchise from beginning to end. What things disappeared, what things were developed, where did the icons come from, and also how how does a, a, a franchise change when it comes out over a series of 10 years? What's the difference between the first entry and the last entry? What things change because of culture? At what point did Halloween stop being <laughs> Halloween? Right. When did he go from being a mysterious masked man to a guy controlled by a druidic cult? Yeah. Is volume one looking at the more mainstream uh, franchises? But doing about 18, I think. I don't want to say for certain which ones we're covering because it really depends on which filmmakers we're talking to. We've actually already spoken to almost 40 different filmmakers now because we're talking to people from a lot of uh, different franchises. So there's a lot more interviews even than there was in The Anatomy of Fear. But it's it's not. It's just quotes. It's not going to be solid conversation. But, um, you know, we're going to obviously we're going to be covering a lot of the big ones, Nightmare on Elm Street, Halloween, Friday the 13th, Child's Play. But then we're going uh, to to delve into some of the sort of the less trod upon uh, genres, and we're going to try and balance it out, you know, so we have a few of the slightly obscure ones like Sleepaway Camp, along with uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. 